sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in a vision at night and said, Jacob, Jacob, here I am, he replied. I am God, the God of your father, he said. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you into a great nation there. I will go down to Egypt with you, and I will surely bring you back again. And Joseph's own hand will close your eyes. Then Jacob left Beersheba, and Israel's sons took their father Jacob and their children and their wives in the carts that Pharaoh had sent to transport him. They also took with them their livestock and the possessions they had acquired in Canaan. And Jacob and all his offspring went to Egypt. He took with him to Egypt his sons and grandsons and his daughters and granddaughters, all his offspring. So the second reading is from Genesis 47, verses 7 to 12. Then Joseph brought his father Jacob in and presented him before Pharaoh. After Jacob blessed Pharaoh, Pharaoh asked him, How old are you? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, The years of my pilgrimage are a hundred and thirty. My years have been few and difficult, and they do not equal the years of the pilgrimage of my fathers. Then Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from his presence. So Joseph settled his father and his brothers in Egypt and gave them property in the best part of the land, the district of Ramesses, as Pharaoh directed. Joseph also provided his father and brothers and all his father's household with food according to the number of their children. And we continue in verses 27 to to 31. Now the Israelites settled in Egypt in the region of Goshen. They acquired property there and were fruitful and increased greatly in number. Jacob lived in Egypt 17 years, and the years of his life were 147. When the time drew near for Israel to die, he called for his son Joseph and said to him, If I have found favor in your eyes, put your hand under my thigh and promise that you will show me kindness and faithfulness. Do not bury me in Egypt. But when I rest with my fathers, carry me out of Egypt and bury me where they are buried. I will do as you say, he said. Swear to me, he said. Then Joseph swore to him, and Israel worshipped as he leaned on the top of his staff. This is the word of God. There are times in a believer's life where God is close. Whether it's because of your life circumstances uh, are in favour and things just keep lining up for you and you find yourself in a season of blessing. Or maybe you're actually walking through a deep, dark valley, but you just know and you feel the presence of the Lord by your side. You can't explain it. It just is. You are experiencing that wonderful peace which passes all understanding. But there are equally times in a believer's life when God appears to be distant. Your prayers seem to go unanswered. 
You have little inspiration for reading the Scriptures. And when you do, it's a dry, even dare I say, boring experience. Perhaps you feel like you're copping one blow after another and you can't figure out what you have done to deserve this. You wouldn't admit it to anyone, but there are even those rare moments when even if just for a second, you might question the very existence of God. Am I kidding myself with this whole God thing, you ask yourself? There are times when we will doubt God's presence and wonder if He has left us. So my question is, when it feels and even looks like God is distant, is He? The narrative today begins with Jacob and his family of refugees on the move. Israel, as he is also called, is travelling from Canaan to Egypt. He arrives in Beersheba, a familiar place where his forefathers Abraham and Isaac lived for a time, and he worships God there. This sacrifice was pleasing to God, and it clearly indicates to us, the reader, that Jacob's heart was focused on the Lord, which meant that he was in a position that his heart was in a posture to hear from the Lord. Jacob was yet again on the move. If you read through the book of Genesis, you will notice that Jacob lived life on the go. And what attention this move must have been for him. On the one hand, he was going to see his beloved son Joseph, who for so many years he thought dead. Combined with the fact that there was famine in the land and Egypt was the only place that had supplies, with his very survival on the line, it's emotionally and logically a no-brainer. Of course he's going to go to Egypt. But spiritually, he was leaving behind the land of promise. Canaan was the promised land that God had pledged to his forefathers. And this, where he was, was going to be the place that God would bless and prosper his people, the Israelites. Not only that, several years before, Jacob's father Isaac had wanted to escape famine by going to Egypt. But God had stopped him on the way. God had said to Isaac in Genesis 26, verse 2, Do not go down to Egypt. Live in the land where I tell you to live. In our modern, economically driven culture, we have very little connection to the land. Whereas in Jacob's time, the land was intrinsically tied up with your livelihood and your destiny. For example, foreign gods of other nations were only accessible in a particular location. And their blessing could only be received and experienced in that place. There was no concept of a portable God. So I'm almost certain that Jacob wrestled with this journey, which is clearly why God appears to him in a vision, or what is called a theophany, to reassure him. 
the Lord wants to reassure Jacob of his presence wherever he goes. Going to Egypt does not, will not, cannot jeopardize the promise God made to Abraham back in chapter 12. The God of Israel, unlike all other false gods, is not bound to a particular place. So the Lord dispels any concerns or reservations that Jacob may have held in his heart as he made that journey down to Egypt. Yahweh's promises and presence always follow his people. Not only will God prosper his people in Egypt, honouring his covenant with Abraham, but he guarantees Jacob that he will return his people to Canaan, the promised land. Now at this point, for the reader, the exodus is clearly in view. Whilst for Jacob, the exodus was centuries away. For the reader of this original text, the exodus is literally a page or two away. Due to the famine, Egypt will become like an ark of preservation for God's people. Egypt will become a place of temporary protection. Noah's storm would last 40 days. And he was within a physical ark in which he built to provide safety and protection. Jacob's storm, metaphorically speaking, would last for up to 400 years. And Egypt would become like this ark that would protect God's people. And they prospered and grew during that time. And eventually, God would bring that ark back to the promised land. And we read the, the, uh, the promise that Jacob makes Joseph promise that his bones would be returned so that he could be buried with his forebears in Canaan. When we read the Bible, one thing we must constantly keep in mind is what did this text originally mean to its first audience? What was in the author's heart. Presumably Moses, in this case, inspired by the Holy Spirit, very carefully crafted these stories with intention and precision that had been handed down orally from one generation to another. What did Moses perceive his audience would think, feel, and know as a result of reading or hearing this particular part of the text. In this case, at this juncture in the story, how would the people of God react to Jacob and his entire family all moving to reside in Egypt? For Joseph, Egypt was a good place. He had prospered immensely there and was able to save many lives through his leadership and wise management of resources. Most significantly, he would save his own family, God's people. For Jacob, Joseph's dad, also known as Israel, 
Egypt was a pagan country, yes, but a country that had entrusted his beloved son with the second highest role in public life, a country that would house and save his family from death by starvation. Whilst Egypt would never be, could never be home, for Jacob, Egypt was in fact a place of safety and refuge. But we must remember this story was not written for Jacob or Joseph. This story was written for future generations, and to them, Egypt was anything but a place of safety and refuge and prosperity. Egypt was a place of slavery, of bondage, of oppression. Egypt was a place to flee from, not a place to move to. Egypt represented everything that Yahweh was opposed to. Egypt was a place of injustice, hatred, pride and arrogance. Egypt was ruled by a tyrannical, bloodthirsty dictator who stood in defiance of Yahweh and ruled with an iron fist. So with that knowledge in mind, how are God's people going to feel about Jacob and his family going down to Egypt? Not good. They might be feeling fearful, abandoned, torn for Jacob in this moment. They might be asking, what will happen? How will Israel and his family survive? Will there be a spiritual famine as well as a physical one? Uh, will God leave? Are the promises and blessings of God only good in Canaan? Well, clearly not, because God had just reassured Jacob, as we read. So what will God's blessing look like in Egypt? And that's really what chapters 46 and 47 are about. They simply outline the many ways that God honours His Word to be faithful and to be with His people. And there are numerous checkpoints where, if you look closely, you can see God's hand working in the background, orchestrating the fulfilment of His promises and remaining true to His Word. You have to look closely because our temptation will be to focus on the characters, will be to look at Joseph and Jacob. In chapters 46 to 20, and 28 and 30, we read of the glorious, tear-filled reunion of Jacob and his long-lost son, Joseph. What a high point in this family drama. At one stage, Jacob had cried so much over the loss of his son that he declared that he would continue to mourn until he joined his son in the grave. And now, father holds son in his arms. That very son. Tears continued to flow, but tears of a very different nature. What a beautiful heart moment in the story. Perfectly orchestrated behind the scenes by the Lord. He knew that would be a special moment. 
next in chapter 46, uh, 31 through to 40, chapter 47 and verse 6, we see Joseph representing his family before Pharaoh, requesting that they be settled in the land due to their dire circumstances in Canaan. Pharaoh not only grants his request, but offers them the best part of the land in Egypt, most suitable for raising livestock and slightly removed from the Egyptians uh, so that the Israelite people would have space to grow numerically as well as carry out some of their religious and ethnic practices that were distinct. Clearly, God's hand working in the background. In chapter 47, verses 7 to 10, Jacob then stands before Pharaoh and blesses him. What an amazing moment in the story. Israel blessing Egypt. Does this not foreshadow love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you? Uh, Is this not also a fulfillment of God's promise to bless all people through Abraham? Further on in verses 11 and 12, Joseph then settles his father and brothers in Egypt. He not only secures them the best part of the land, but also provides them all with an abundance of food and supplies so that they would have everything they need to prosper and survive. Chapter chapter 47, verse 13 to 26, outlines the situation and strategy of how Joseph saved many people, Egyptian and Canaanite, from death by starvation. This was a blessing, but then also in a bizarre twist, this was such a dire situation that it led Joseph to be the one responsible for accepting people's offer to become slaves of Pharaoh in exchange for their survival. Starvation will clearly lead people to extreme measures, and this was no exception. So their starvation led them to become slaves. Even though God knew the devastating effects this enslavement would have on his people, True to his word and promise, he would in time deliver them with his mighty hand. In chapter 47, verse 27, we read that the Israelites settled in Egypt, in the region of Goshen. They acquired property there and were fruitful and increased greatly in number. God's hand is tangibly seen through how Israel multiplies and prospers during this season. Now through all of this, What the author is saying to the listener is this. God was with his people in Egypt. He was present with them there. He did not leave or abandon them. And so if you are the listener at this point and you find yourself in your own Egypt The message to you is that God does not, God will not leave or abandon you. God is with his people wherever he goes. And and that's the point of today's text. God was present with his people when they went down to Egypt. And God will be present with them when he brings them up again. In Jesus Christ... God 
is present with you and I. Whether it's at our neighbour's table, in the workplace, when we are struggling to get along with other colleagues, in the sporting arena when we are trying to control our temper, in a caravan travelling around Australia and you get results that mean you have to come back to have an operation. Even in Mozambique, if God calls you there, God goes with you. God is with us wherever we go. Jesus assured his followers that he would be with them until the very end of the age. That promise, of course, extends to us today. Jesus, the Son of God, the one whom God gave all authority in heaven and earth, is with us wherever we go. However, the fact that God is always with us does not mean that we will always prosper and that life will always be smooth sailing. God's presence with Jacob did not mean an end to hardship. Jacob eventually died. God's presence with the nation of Israel did not prevent their enslavement and oppression under a Pharaoh who did not know Joseph. Think of this. The Israelites were forced to drown their baby boys in the River Nile. And I bet in the midst of that traumatic suffering, it would have felt as though God was a million miles away. But somehow God was there, right in the midst of their suffering. And eventually, He did bring them up out of Egypt, back to the land of promise. You see, the fact that Jesus promised his disciples that he would always be with them does not mean that they too would avoid hardship or suffering. Stephen was stoned to death. Peter was killed. Paul suffered beatings, imprisonment, and was martyred for his faith. God's presence with us includes blessing but it also includes suffering. Sometimes I think when we are suffering, when we are going through a difficult time, uh, there's a sense as though we are outside of God's reach, perhaps outside of God's will. But God is with us whether we are in blessing or whether we are in suffering. As Valerie said so wonderfully last Sunday, God does not will suffering into our lives, but when we are going through that suffering, God's presence is still there, even though we may feel as though God has abandoned us. Romans 8, 35 to 39 reassuringly reminds us of the boundless, inescapable love of Christ. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. No matter where you go, 
No matter what you do, if you are God's, then his presence in Christ will never leave you, will never forsake you. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you that you are a God who goes with us. That you are a God who is always present. You are a God who is present in those still and calm and green pastures. You are a God who goes with us through the deep, dark valley, even the valley of the shadow of death. And so, God, we just want to thank you for your faithfulness to your word. We thank you that you are a God in whom we can trust because we know that you keep your promises. And so, God, as your people who are often frail and broken and weak, we ask, Lord, that we would find strength in you, that we would be reminded that through the storm, you are there. And so, in particular, Lord, I just want to pray now for each person here who is experiencing some type of storm in their life, perhaps some type of Egypt. I just want to pray that your Holy Spirit would come and in the quietness of this moment speak comfort and hope and reassurance into their heart, reminding them that your presence never leaves. Lord, sometimes you do feel and seem distant, but we thank you this morning that your word has reminded us that you are not a distant God. You are a present God. And for this we give you thanks and praise in Jesus' name. Amen.